said to you, I really did not feel led to do a Mother's Day sermon on that particular week after four weeks of parenting and marriage. And Keith did a phenomenal job of taking the next section of Scripture and walking through it. I also didn't feel led because of all of that to do a Father's Day message as well. Had I felt led to do a Father's Day message, this thought ran through my mind immediately. If I didn't do a Mother's Day one and did a Father's Day one, I may make some moms upset. And so the next thought that ran through my mind is, if mama ain't happy, guys, finish it with me. Ain't nobody happy. You know that. Not in my house, but in some other houses I've heard that that happens. And so we're not. I'm going to go right into this next section of Scripture. You're in Acts 3 and 4. Again, if you listened yesterday on Phone Tree, I said, bring your Bibles. I know a lot of you use electronic, and that's fine. If you have one, it really would help you. I've got sermon notes in there for you. Some notes from last Sunday's sermon, because there's four things I always want you to see as a measuring rod. Keep us accountable to that. But I want you to see it as a measuring rod because a lot of you go to other places or move or relocate. You've got students going to college this fall. And I just want you to encourage them to look for these things when they make a decision as to where they want to go and what church they want to get connected to. That's the, outside of deciding a college. That's the very next step your young person needs to take. How will I get involved? How will I continue to maintain my spiritual life? Where will I go to church or what ministry in a campus can I get involved in? Because I'm telling you, you talk about a smorgasbord of choices out there. It will hit you when August comes and September comes and you're on that college campus. So look for these things and make sure you get connected to a church family. This morning I want to do a little bit different teaching style. Instead of three points that all start with the same letter and ending with a poem or a story... I want to look at chapters 3 and 4 for the next few weeks. Now, on Thursday or Friday, I send to the guys in the sound booth the entire text so they know what to expect and that all the words get on the board. And I know when they saw 27 or 29 pages, they had somewhat of a heart attack, assuming they would be here till Jesus comes back. And uh, I, I went ahead because there are so many great points. We're not going to get them all today. Matter of fact, the first service, I thought I'd get page 14, somewhere in 13, the time ran out and we got finished. What I want you to see is a number of things. There's some great points over the next few uh, moments and days that I want to share with you. But what I want you to see is this is not a study of history. It is not a history book. It's not the context of days gone by. What you're going to see and understand out of these books are just as alive as if they were written last week. It's so, so easy to see Old Testament or New Testament as a history book of days gone by when there are some powerful truths that apply to us today. And I want to point them out over the next few hours and next few <laughs> hours. You're going, seriously, he is staying forever. The next few weeks as we walk through these chapters. I've loved the first two. I'm telling you, you won't believe what God's going to reveal to us in these next number of chapters. So stay with us as we go along. Acts 3, verse 1. You've got sermon notes. Take them out. Get a pencil or a pen. Two things out of just the very first verse, one day, Peter and John were going to the temple, a time of prayer at three in the afternoon. One day, Peter and John were going to the temple, at time of prayer at three in the afternoon. I point that out for a couple of reasons. One specifically is that Peter and John were going to the temple as they normally did. Peter and John are Jews. They act like Jews. They do what Jews do. They were absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. 
But it didn't change their culture. It didn't change their routine. They were still going to the temple on a normal day, at the normal time, at the normal hour. They weren't even called Christians yet. Matter of fact, it wasn't until Acts chapter 11 that they were first called Christians at Antioch. The term Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. I point that out to remind us that not everyone who follows Christ does things like we do. Now, maybe you already knew that. Maybe it's not even a big deal to you. But what I have found in all of my ministry life is that sometimes we Christians, when we worship a certain way or do things a certain way or function in a certain capacity, we think everyone should who follows Christ. And we go to other churches and we kind of compare. Well, they don't do it like we do. They must not have the Spirit of God landing on that place. Now, you could go to a church and you know the Spirit of God isn't there. Sometimes we judge it based on either how we worship, the type of songs we sing, or the style or the function or the format of our service. And it's not always that way. From high church to regular church to more formal or tradition to contemporary to really formal settings, from Pentecostal to main mainline, believers in Christ worship Him and follow Him in a dozen different ways. And so I I share that with you so that when you look at other churches or the way other Christians follow Jesus or worship him or what they do in a service, you don't think that we've got the corner on God or they do it different than us. They must not be following the same Jesus. When you see the body of Christ and you recognize that people are a part of the family of God, one of the things you'll notice is an enormous amount of diversity. Their life may change dramatically in Jesus. Their behavior will change. Their attitude will change. Their outlook on life will change. But some things culturally don't. Or the style of service or the style of worship may not change. And what we need to understand is that's okay. Missionaries wrestle with this a lot. They'll come from America assuming that everybody is either as further behind than us or ought to do things like us. And then they'll all of a sudden see that people have dramatically changed based on their relationship with Jesus, but their culture doesn't change with it. And sometimes we're not sure what to do with that, and sometimes missionaries really wrestle with that. How do I change their whole outlook and life and still allow them to be really true to their culture? Americans have a struggle sometimes thinking that everybody in the world is like us or is farther behind in us or should be like us. Matter of fact, when our people win a baseball championship, we call them what? The winners of the what? World Series. They didn't play the world. When they win the Super Bowl, they're called what? World champions. They didn't take on the world. But we somehow think we're world champions when we do that. Now, they're playing soccer now, and when they they win, it's going to be called what? World Cup. That makes sense. Doesn't always, when we look at how we think the rest of the world ought to function. And sometimes when we Christians look at other Christians who we know are followers of Christ, we need to give them the freedom to do what they do in the manner in which they do it. Second thing I want to point out is that Peter and John are together. Now, I say that for a couple of reasons. One is these guys in the New Testament were pretty much competitors. What I love happens when the Spirit of God lands is now they're co-workers. Now, they may have seen themselves as co-workers before, but if you read the New Testament pretty clearly, you'll know that Peter and John didn't always see everything the same way. No, they still may not, but they didn't always see everything the same way. And if you read the Gospel of John through that grid, you probably could easily interpret 
that these guys were competitors. Just read the context of the resurrection when John says, that, that other guy ran on ahead. Matter of fact, he went down in the tomb. You know we shouldn't have done that. But he went down in a tomb. I got there too, but I stayed in the outside. And when Jesus appears to them after the resurrection and sits down to talk to them and reinitiates his relationship with Peter, what's the very first thing Peter asks him? What about John? What's going to happen to John? And Jesus said, what is it to you? If I keep him here, do I return? Now, all of a sudden, you walk into this context here in Acts chapter 3, and the Spirit of God has landed on this group of people in the upper room. And now you see them as co-workers, not competitors. Now, I could be wrong and misinterpreting what I see in the New Testament. I don't think. But what I love here is that you see these guys who before may have been in a different context, now as co-workers and going as a team. When Jesus sent out his disciples in Luke chapter 10, he sent them out two by two. Paul hardly ever traveled alone. Billy Graham makes a point throughout his ministry life of never traveling alone and understanding the value of camaraderie and the value of a team. In your sermon notes, I have some of the benefits of being together with someone else out of a fascinating section of Scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I've done a lot of weddings, and they'll use that as a couple but I think it goes much broader than that. Look at some of the things you see in there in regards to the benefit of working together. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. When you fall down, you've got somebody else to pick you up. Somebody else who's there to encourage you. Someone else to lift you up. Sad is the guy who lives his life in isolation. Sad is the individual who lives his life alone. Who has so been consumed with individualism and being able to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, that I don't have someone else in my life that I can really trust, someone else in my life who's there with me, someone else in my life that I can pour out my life to, not just simply your mate, as wonderful as they are in that context, but maybe another friend, another individual that you trust enough and that you know they trust you, that you can walk through life together. Pity is the man who falls down and no one is there to pick him up. And that's really true. Shrink to face attack, so in verse, the next verse, so one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. The cord of three strands is not quickly broken. If you're in leadership, not only in your home, but obviously in the business world, if you're in leadership and you're a lone ranger, you could be in a pretty dangerous position. Because at times, lone ranger leadership, where every decision is only based on your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions and your response, could be dangerous. Here at Community Alliance Church, Bob Thomas and I, who's our executive pastor, couldn't be more different as individuals. I mean, if you knew us well, and those who know us well, we could not be more different as individuals. But every single decision we make, staff decisions and major decisions and the outlook of our future, we make as a team. And that's really important because sometimes I've seen pastors put themselves in a position where they're making all the decisions and they've said all the yeses and they've set the tone and they've set the direction and then all of a sudden they leave or go another place or go in another context and no one knows what to do. Our elder board functions as a team. We've been blessed over the last number of years not with guys who say, we're going to make sure you guys are on board. We're going to make sure you guys are doing it right. We've got a group of people who really trust us, who love us, who understand the necessity of working together and functioning together as a team. So when you look at that verse and you see Peter and John went to the temple to pray, 
I want you to back up enough when you look at sections like that and say, what can I learn from them? And what can I learn about this? Now, the next part of the story jumps out. You can't miss it. Verse 2. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he's put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. I don't know if you've been to other cities and other communities where you see beggars, but when you go overseas, you see them everywhere, and many times sitting in a traffic zone where they know someone will see them. And very difficult to know sometimes how to respond. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. That's what they do. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave, him, gave them his full attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said that classic phrase that we build children's songs around, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do... I give to you, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. Three things in your notes this morning. Power of the name of Jesus. Very noticeable care in pushing the credit and glory to Christ. And the confidence and boldness of doing ministry in the power of the Spirit. First thing that I see in this particular context is that the same Jesus that Peter referred to is the same one we pray to every single Sunday. Now you may already know that. Sometimes I've been in churches where you're not always sure of that where they kind of put Jesus on a shelf or Jesus in history or the things that happened in the book of Acts in a historical context as opposed to saying this same Jesus, this same Jesus when he said that, this same Jesus is the Jesus that we're going to ask to heal your body when you come forward for prayer. The same Jesus that walked the streets of Jerusalem and the shores of Galilee is the same Jesus we call on when we come to him and ask him for healing for our mortal bodies. One of the tenets of the Christian Missionary Alliance is that we not only believe in Christ our Savior and our Sanctifier and our coming King, we believe in Christ our Healer for today. Some churches don't or at least don't function like they do. Every Sunday I ask people to come and if they want to at the end of a service, come for prayer. And many do. Many have taken advantage of that. And it's for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it crosses over into counseling because they've come with a, a whole load of things and you're trying to fit it all into a context. But many times they'll come for prayer. And we pray over them. We pray for them. We pray believing that this Jesus that John and Peter referred to is the same one that can touch their lives today. Now, we refer to it and utilize it within the context of James chapter 5. James is straight up. All the way through the book of James, he's straight up. But he said, you're in trouble you ought to pray. That's great advice. You're happy? You ought to sing. Great advice. You're going to see that in a moment out of chapter eight or chapter uh, 3, verse 8. You're sick? You need to pray. Matter of fact, you ought to call the elders of the church. You ought to ask them to pray over you. You need to confess your sins because those two go together at times and so if you want to seek God for healing, you ought to come in preparation for that and make sure the channel is open and clean. They're going to pray over you. They're going to anoint you with oil. There's nothing magical or mystical about the oil. It's olive oil that we get from Giant Eagle or wherever we get it from. But it's a prayer of faith. It's the belief that the same Jesus that John referred to, that Peter referred to, that was there in Jerusalem is the same Jesus that can heal today. Now the question that's often asked is, why doesn't he do it every time? 
Why doesn't it happen like we see in the book of Acts? And I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest with you. If I did, I'd be traveling, writing books, and doing seminars. But I do know that Jesus has healed. I've seen that Jesus that we call on, that we utilize this section of Scripture in James 5, remove cancer. I've seen him remove tumors. I've seen him heal broken limbs. I've seen him restore a variety of things that had been dead, in a sense, for a long period of time and bring them back to life. And so when we pray, I always want us to believe that this same Jesus that Peter called on is the one that we're calling on today. And so when you come for prayer, whatever that may be, I want you to know we're going to pray in the same kind of confidence. The second thing is in this section here is how careful Peter is to deflect the glory to Jesus. When God blesses a ministry or a minister, it's very easy to battle with pride. When God blesses a minister or a ministry, it's very easy to battle with pride. They may not tell you that, so I'm going to tell you straight up. It's really easy to battle with pride. John the Baptist is a fascinating example in the New Testament. He began his ministry knowing that he was a forerunner of Jesus. He already had known that almost from birth, but I'm sure his parents set it in motion because they had understood what God had charged them to do and him to do. And so he began his ministry, and people began to flock to that. Matter of fact, it was a public ministry, and it was very noticeable. And people were coming from all walks of life and being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And John was doing it publicly in the Jordan River, and hundreds, I've got to believe, were gathered around. He constantly talked about Jesus who was coming, and then one day Jesus came. And Jesus asked to be baptized by him, and John humbly, there was a conversation that went on, but John humbly did it. He says one of the classic phrases in John 3.30 that's in your sermon notes. When he looks at who he was and who he's proceeding and who's coming after him, and he said, I've got to step back, I've got to decrease, and he must increase. In a few weeks, you're going to hear about a man named Barnabas, who probably did it as well as anybody in the New Testament. Well-known, obviously some good resources, was able to bless people in wonderful ways. Pretty much everyone knew what he did. He was called a son of encouragement. That's a great accolade. I heard one day that The guy who'd been arresting and putting Christians to death had now been confronted with Jesus and turned his life over to Christ. His name was Saul. Nobody wanted him in the family of God. Nobody wanted to claim that he was part of their family at all. We knew what he did. We don't want him. Barnabas went to him. Barnabas brought him in, encouraged him, loved him, walked with him, and brought him, introduced him to the apostles in the New Testament. For the next number of weeks when you walk through the New Testament, you're going to see phrases like Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. Then somewhere along the way it flips to Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul. And what you love about Barnabas is he's okay with that. He doesn't have to have the limelight. He doesn't have to have it always shining on him. He doesn't always have to be up front. He doesn't always have to have name recognition. He doesn't always have to be in the spotlight. And what I love is to watch people who are incredibly gifted, wonderfully blessed by God, but okay with not always being the center of attention. One of the reasons I love Keith Kozik so much is his honest-to-goodness humility. Now, you've seen false humility. People who say the right things, 
I'm just blessed to be blessed by God. And I just want to be his, you know, and they'll say a number of things. But you know they love the spotlight. What I love about this is his ability with all of his gifts and all of his strengths and the blessing of God, obviously, on his life to make sure that he pushes the credit to Jesus. I mean, good night. The guy preached one day and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. That's a really good sermon day. I mean, when 3,000 people in a few minutes, you're going to see it increases to 5,000 men. So often wondered if that's what he was referring to in, in that context. So three or four, 5,000 people come to Christ on your very first sermon. My very first sermon, I killed the whole audience. It was 17 points. And I had no idea what I was finally trying to say. Neither did anybody else in the audience. And one of the guys in Newcastle Alliance Church, till the day I, last time I saw him, reminded me of that 17-point sermon. I mean, this guy preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people respond. He's now in his very first miracle, and a guy who'd been lame since birth walks. This is a good day. This is a really good day. And Peter, who loved the spotlight and loved the limelight, good night. Who was the very first one? Any question Jesus ever answered, ever asked? Peter's going, I know, I know, I know, like Horshack, and here comes Cotter. And you're all going, what? You even know that one, Coase? You don't know that one either. I didn't think. Man, am I old. You know, pick me, pick me. You can see Peter all the time. Pick me, pick me, pick me. I know the answer. I know the answer. All of his life. Up until the saturation of the Spirit of God, this guy was in the limelight, always had something to say, always had the first answer, always wanted to make sure everyone knew who he was. And now all of a sudden, the Spirit of God lands on this guy, and he does everything he possibly can to point to Jesus. Verse 3, or verse 6, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus. Walk. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man that you see who is now here and now was made strong, it is in the name of Jesus and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. Chapter 4, if we're being called to account for what we've done to this man, I need you to know this, you and all the people, it is by the name of Jesus whom you crucified that God raised from the dead that this man stands before you today. Anyone who loved the limelight, it was Peter, but now saturated by the Spirit of God, he constantly points to Christ. Give you a short Father's Day message, guys, even though I know I've taken a risk because I didn't do a Mother's Day one. Guys, I'm going to say this to you right now. If you have boys and they've never been affirmed by their dad, they will look for affirmation in achievements or the accolades of others. As sure as I'm standing here right now before Almighty God, if you have not been affirmed or you have not affirmed your boys, I'm telling you, they will thrive and sometimes be driven for achievement or the accolades of others, because they desperately need that. And if you have girls, and you've not appropriately helped them understand what love and tenderness and grace is all about, I am also here to tell you, they too will look for it in many times the wrong places. You may not believe it, and I'm telling you, they won't tell you. What do you want for Father's Day? And the best thing they can do for you is to say thanks. I appreciate the encouragement. I appreciate the affirmation. They're going to tell you that they want a whole ton of other things. <laughs> I want an iPad. I want an iPod. I want an iPhone. I want, this is endless. But I'm telling you what they need. 
is a dad who affirms them, a dad who encourages them, a dad who believes in them, and a dad who loves them appropriately and gives them an understanding of what affection and attention genuinely is, that they will receive it and need it from you. There's a lot of guys that aren't here, a lot of dads that, that have missed that, and I get it. And a lot of gals that so wish their dad would have done that, and I can't change, I can't go backwards. All I can say is if you're a dad in this room, the best thing you can do for your boys, encourage them. Not push them to do things you've never accomplished. I've seen too many dads do that. I'm just saying, if you don't do it, they'll look for it. And many times they'll be so driven by achievement that they'll fry somewhere in their 40s. Okay? That's free. But it's gold. What you also notice in chapter 3 and 4 is an incredibly wonderful balance in the context of holistic ministry. I have it in your sermon notes this morning. What you'll see in chapters 3 and 4, and I'm not going to read them all this morning. I encourage you to do that in your own personal Bible study. But a great job in apologetics, which is a defense of Christianity, incredible job in evangelistic preaching, and the ministry of healing. It is very easy for churches to get those three out of balance. Where they do one more than the other, where they'll really be heavy on evangelism and every single service is an evangelistic service and nobody grows in their relationship with God or only involved in a relationship with God where they grow and mature and are talking about Christianity and are defending Christianity and all of that, but they have no opportunity for people to come to faith in Christ. And some of them will never, ever exercise the gift of healing because they see it as something that used to be and not for today. What you look for, going back to a great church, is a church that does a really good, solid job in understanding what Christianity is all about, understanding why it is the one and only way to salvation, understanding that there are the necessity of seeing people come to faith in Christ and the unnecessary section or section of Scripture that talks in so many cases about offering healing to people who still need it today. Again, you're a, college, you're a high school student going off to college. You talk about a smorgasbord of ideas you're going to hear out there. It will blow your mind away, even though you don't believe that. And you better, you really need to know what you believe. In the 80s, Paul Little wrote a book, Know What You Believe, because he found out high school kids didn't have a clue what they believed. Then they went off to college, and he found out they had no idea why they believed it. So he wrote another book, Know Why You Believe. And they're old. They're really old. But I'm telling you, you really need to know those two things before you go out into the world. Try to function on your own. What you believe and why it's critical to you and, wh- yeah, and why you believe it, why you know it's the only way of life. What you'll see here is this in these three sermons, in these two chapters. I want to go back to this section a minute just for this fascinating phrase that one commentator said. This whole silver and gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus walk. This is what a commentator said. With the sums of money in churches today, some of it, of course, still in people's wallets, It probably can't say, as Peter did, silver and gold have I none. We're really ridiculously blessed. And sometimes we can depend much more on our resources and our finances than the power of the living God. Peter and John had nothing. And sometimes we're so blessed we forget what it's like to have nothing or to have a little. Sums of money in churches today, some of it's still in people's wallets. It may not be able to say, as Peter did, silver and gold I do not have, but if not careful... They can be physically rich, but so spiritually poor that neither can they say, in the name of Jesus, walk. If I were to put something in your sermon notes I didn't, that would be it. Effective ministry is not just about numbers and resources, but an absolute, complete dependence on the power of God's Spirit 
when we're totally submitted to him. It is not about resources. Look, a good night, look how blessed we are here. It's not about resources. It's not about great buildings. It's not about a good budget. It is about the power of the living God. There are churches with incredible budgets and no life. We want to way depend more on the life that Christ offers, not resources. Let me ask you a question. When, God, when, you, when you remember what it was like, and when you think every once in a while what it was like for you to have been where you were, once I was blind, but now I see, once I was lame, and now I walk, when you remember what it was like to be rescued and redeemed and set free by the living God, how did you respond to that? What was the natural response? I, I was blind, but now I see. I was lame, but now I walk. Paul said, if I was still in my sins, I'm dead. Not just hurting, not just in trouble. You're dead. You have absolutely no hope on earth. You are dead. But Christ in his amazing grace offered you life. What's the response to that? Do you remember? You know what it is? If you don't, I'll give it to you. It's in Luke, or it's in Acts chapter 3, verse 8. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went to the temple. He went to the house of God, walking and jumping and praising God. When you truly recognize and appreciate what God's done in your life, worship becomes easy. It doesn't have to be manufactured and manipulated. It flows from a grateful heart. Whether it's corporately or privately, whether you're just driving along in your own vehicle, I know there are people that drive beside me and think, that man's lost his mind. Well, everybody knew that if they knew me anyhow. Were you singing and praising and just enjoying music and enjoying life or coming here corporately? When you really understand that you've been rescued and redeemed, that once you were blind and now you see, once you were lamed and now you walk, once you were dead in your trespasses and sins and now you have life in Christ, we ought to be able to do what this guy did, walking and leaping and praising God. I know for only those of you over here in this corner, you saw this little gal this morning just enjoy. Brad, I know you had to see it, brother. She was just having a ball. And I got to believe some of us would say, she needs to sit down. She needs to, exactly, no, we need to get up, is that? And, and I watched her, and there's another little boy over here every once in a while. When Eli comes, man, he is into this service, and he is in the aisle, and he is singing, and he is praising, and someone gave him sticks from the drum set, and he's just hammering away at everything. He's enjoying the experience. All of us ought to learn from them, which is why it says, but a child shall lead them. You want to know how to enjoy life? You want to know how to enjoy a service? Come any one of those nights during Bible school. I'm telling you, it will be alive in this place. And those of us who have been around a long time, who know Jesus, and we've been set free, and we've been redeemed, and we've been washed by the blood of Christ, and we've had our past forgiven as lousy and awful as for some of us it may be. And to know that now I can come in the presence of the living God and sing and celebrate, this guy just gives an amazing example of that. The thing you notice here is that it drew a crowd. People are looking for all the things that I said in a great church, and, and all of that is absolutely true. But you know what's really attractive? When I come to a church and I'm visiting it for the first time, I see people who seem like they really enjoy being here. They really enjoy being in this place. They're not here because they're supposed to or not here because it's Sunday and it's 7.45 or 10.45 or 11 o'clock and, and I better show up and I ought to sing and okay, when the, here comes the offering plate. They always do money. They're always asking for money. And when's this guy going to be over? Good night. Is ten, it's 10 till. Good night. And they shouldn't have looked. You know, if, it's, if they only see that. 
I mean, this guy's excitement and enthusiasm drew a crowd. And everybody wanted to see it. You know what draws people to a church? A church that they is alive. That lady a couple weeks ago after one of the services said to me, I'm one of those odd people that moved from Florida to here after retirement. She said, everybody from here moves to Florida when they retire. I moved from Florida to here. Visiting churches, and I've loved the excitement and enthusiasm here. Now, it's just not because of the way we sing. We don't want to ever do it for that reason. But what you feel, what you sense. And she said, I visited three churches, and I found the one I want to be a part of. This guy drew a crowd by people that were there. I'll finish next Sunday in a context here. I'm even further behind than I was in the last one. But uh, what you'll see in chapter 4 is what Jesus said, look, not everybody's going to like what you do. (laughs) Not everybody's going to like you because you're associated with me. And what you're going to see in chapter 4 is that very thing taking place. But what I also want you to see in chapter 4 is they're going to be put in prison and all of that for their faith. But I don't want you to miss, it's in your sermon notes, verse 4. Been through prison, into prison, they don't know where it's going to go. But in the middle of all of that, Five, the number grew to 5,000. Every once in a while, in the middle of trials, comes a blessing. And I don't want you to miss that. Many times, in the middle of a deep, deep trial, is a blessing. And it may not be that, and that's where we sometimes get mistaken, because we want to see the big blessing. Right in the middle of it, I want to see healing. Right in the middle of this difficulty, I want to see life transformed. Right in the middle of these deep waters, I want to see the miraculous take place. And you know what your blessing may be? To have somebody to walk through it with you. Your blessing may just simply be a friend who loves you in the middle of it. Your greatest blessing as a husband or a wife may be a man or a woman who meant it when they said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. You may never see the miraculous. You may never see the healing. You may never see the answer. You may go through that valley for years on end. But the blessing may be I've got a man or a woman who meant it when they said for better, for worse. And she's still here. And he's still here. So often we look for the big. And every time I read Acts, someone will come up to me. Why don't we see this stuff then? And what I just simply want to say is don't miss some amazing blessings that God does because you're always looking for the miraculous. Father, I love your word. It really is alive and relevant and present. And so as we unpack it in these weeks together, there's so much incredible truth that you want to teach us. May we never, ever miss it. I thank you for your word. I thank you for keeping it alive. Thank you for the opportunity we have to celebrate it and learn from it. May that be our posture in these weeks together that we will learn and learn and learn from it. So that they'll say, like they did to these guys, they must have been with Jesus. Look at how they respond to life. May that be true of us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you. Love you. Have a great, great day. Great Father's Day, dads. Enjoy it to the fullest. And uh, we'll see you next week. We're going to pick up right here where we left off.